Nuclear Weapons Fight Back. What will it take to stop the building, positioning, and possible deployment of nuclear weapons in our lifetimes, or the lifetimes of anything that's still alive on Earth? A first good step would be the prohibition not only of nuclear weapons use and manufacture, but their very existence. A pipe dream, you say? Perhaps. But a lot of people around the world have been sharing that dream, with stunning results that reached a point of celebration on July 7, 2017, when the United Nations passed the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. When we wanted to find out what it was like in the room where it happened, we talked with one veteran anti-nuclear eco-feminist activist who was there, and we spoke less than one hour after its passage, and exclusively for Nuclear Hot Seat. She told us, so here was the moment. I was in there when they voted, when the, when the vote was announced and sealed uh, officially, and people were cheering, crying, hugging. It was a really powerful moment. And there's so much more that she reported on. Because when Heidi Huttner excitedly describes this scene at this peak moment in the history of the fight against nuclear weapons, and you realize that the sense of jubilation has been and is being still shared around the world you get the sense that we just may have moved a little bit away from that scary, awful, dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, as part of the lead-up to next week's second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons at the United Nations in New York, we give you highlights from Nuclear Hot Seat's ongoing coverage of the TPNW, as it's called, and those who are working so hard to advance it. We hear excerpts from four interviews covering seven years. Filmmaker and professor Heidi Huttner talks about what it was like to be present when the historic UN vote was taken. International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Policy and Research Coordinator Alicia Sayers-Zachary speaks on the toll that financing nukes takes on a nation's necessary human services, such as COVID resources. We hear Alice Slater of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation speaking truth to power about the TPNW at the New York City Council's meeting considering whether or not they're going to join the cities. We'll only have a brief time this week for nuclear news, but there will be more honest nuclear information than I suspect will be discussed around most Thanksgiving tables. All of it coming up right now. Today is Tuesday, November 21st, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Briefly, 
The United States is preparing to announce a pledge to triple the world's production of nuclear energy by 2050, with more than 10 countries on four continents already signed on. This is the first major international agreement in modern history to ramp up the use of nuclear power. And many of the largest current users of nuclear energy have signed up, such as the United Kingdom, France, Romania, Sweden, the United Arab Emirates, Japan, and South Korea. With the addition of reactor-less but avid supporters, including Poland, Ghana, and Morocco. On October 12th, the U.S. Strategic Posture Commission released its long-awaited report on U.S. nuclear policy and strategic stability. The 12-member commission was handpicked by Congress in 2022 to conduct a threat assessment, consider alterations to U.S. force posture, and provide recommendations. However, nine of the 12 members of this commission have direct financial ties to contractors that would benefit from the report's recommendations or are employed at think tanks that receive considerable funding from weapons manufacturers. While the Commission purports to recommend steps to avoid nuclear conflict, it does nothing to disclose its own potential conflicts of interest with the weapons industry in its final report or at rollout events at think tanks in Washington. We'll have this week's special report on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and its upcoming meetings in New York in just a moment. But first... Giving Tuesday. That's the collective call to action for you, the troops, to rally around and donate to nonprofits of your choice. Nuclear Hot Seat became a nonprofit this year, so we're calling out to you to help us with our mission to bring you each week's nuclear news from a different perspective. The show is supported solely by donations, and without them, we cannot continue let alone travel to cover national and international stories, like next week's second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons at the United Nations. A full week of meetings, actions, panels, networking, trainings, and planning for the coming year and years. Representatives will be there from 93 countries that have already ratified the treaty and declared their lands and waters to be nuclear weapons-free, as well as those countries that are in the ratification process. So will activists from around the world. It's a big step into the international community for Nuclear Hot Seat and for your ability to learn the kinds of things about nuclear weapons around the world that mainstream media doesn't cover and the nukesters don't want you to know. I'm pleased to report that I have received full press credentials from the UN and will be interviewing as many notables and attendees as I can over the full five days. But this is where you come in. Without you, I can't do it. Be it Giving Tuesday or any other day, your help is needed to cover the expenses not just of this trip, but the monthly running costs for the show. So if you value Nuclear Hot Seat and the quality of information we provide you every week, Help us now with a donation of any size, either one-time or recurring. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, so your donations are tax-deductible. Please help us as generously as you can. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the Donate button. If you have Zelle, you can send money directly to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful for this opportunity to serve you better and can't wait to bring you all the news. Now here's this week's Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons special with four featured interviews. The second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons is taking place next week 
November 27 to December 1st at the United Nations in New York, with supporting events taking place around the city and the world. I'm going to be there to cover the events, talk with the representatives, and capture the solemn excitement of having representatives from the 93 signatory countries in one place at one time, possibly the greatest ingathering of hope for a peaceful, survivable future for life on this planet. To prepare not only me, but you as well, I've compiled a series of interviews from Nuclear Hot Seat to capture aspects of the treaty, the work of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, as well as one simple step that any one of us can do to support an international ban on nuclear weapons. First, the basics. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, referred to as the TPNW, sometimes called the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty, is the first legally binding international agreement to comprehensively prohibit nuclear weapons, with the ultimate goal being their total elimination. For those nations that are party to it, the treaty prohibits the development, testing, production, stockpiling, stationing, transfer, use, and threat of use of nuclear weapons, and also providing assistance and encouragement to prohibited activities. This treaty was passed on July 7, 2017. That's when it was adopted by the UN, but still had to go through a ratification process with all the countries. First, we hear from Heidi Hutner. She is now director of the award-winning documentary Radioactive, The Women of Three Mile Island, as well as director of the Sustainability Studies Program at Stony Brook University. This interview with Heidi was recorded within one hour of the passage of the TPNW when she was still at the UN in the room where it happened. You can hear the excitement pouring off us both. This is from Nuclear Hot Seat, number 316, July 11, 2017. Heidi, where are you and what just happened? Well, I'm at the UN in New York City, and a, a historic moment just happened. The United Nations just voted almost by consensus, one vote abstention, one against, and all of the other 122 voted in favor of this treaty to prohibit the use of nuclear weapons and, and to move forward with getting rid of them. Now, we know that you know the, the nine nuclear nations are not here and they're not participating. But this is a tremendous moment because it's saying the rest of the nation don't want this, don't want to proceed with this, and so for truly moving forward with the abolition of nuclear weapons. In reading about this, I have been in tears this morning. Tears, and tears, so lots of tears. So, okay, so here was the moment. I was in there when they voted, when the, when the vote was announced and sealed uh, officially, and people were cheering, crying, hugging. It was a really powerful moment. And I was right next to the two nuclear nuns, Carol Gilbert and Ardeth Platt, and they were the two nuns who went to jail in protest of nuclear weapons, and they were crying. All the women from ICANN who have come from all over the world weeping. And then Kathleen Sullivan, who from the Hibakusha stories, uh, Robert Kroonquist, who's also from Hibakusha, everyone was weeping. Many women from all over the world, and men, Australia, Japan, India. There was an amazing speech by the ambassador from South Africa, who spoke about this being the eve of Nelson Mandela Day and how he is watching in this moment and weeping and so proud of this vote. It is thrilling, even from a distance, to know what has happened 
and that the history is here right in front of us right at this moment. And what's the next step? What do we do to start implementing this around the world, including here in the United States, which has been probably will be the last one to sign on? Right. So I think what this is saying is, look, we have the rest of the world in support of this. And for those of us who, who are active and advocates on behalf of the abolition of nuclear weapons, we can now use this as a tool to both divest from banks that invest in nuclear weaponry, it's a really big one, the divestment campaign, and get this message out on social media. Everyone should be doing it. You've got plenty of opportunity now. Uh, you have material to work with. You can go to the ICANN website. There are leaders internationally in promoting this. So there's lots of photographs and material there and articles. You can follow me, HeidiHutner.com. You can follow me on Facebook. I've got lots of photos. And retweet, re-Facebook. I mean, get it out there. We know our president. We know these people. Social media works. So use that and write letters to your editor. You know, tell your congressmen, reinforce this, and, and congresswomen and senators, reinforce how important this is and how we need to join with the rest of the world and ab abolish these horrific, horrific weapons. In looking at the film that you posted, the video that you posted about yes. the moment when the vote happened and everybody standing and applauding, the one thing that bothered me was in the panning around the room, I did not see any, I saw one camera that looked like it was from a major news organization and it was that mm -hmm. kind of a camera, but other than that, I did not see any significant video presence from the mainstream media. Have you gotten uh, coverage? There is coverage. They're not allowed in that room. So I don't know how those people got. I mean, we just, I walked in and turned my iPhone on. I'm not even technically supposed to be there. I'm not part of, quote, civil society, but I'm there anyway, and no one's sort of stopping me. But there is a camera room that you couldn't see where there are cameras, and they're, they're videoing from a side point. So, yes, there is media here, but they're not allowed in that room. In fact, I had a cameraman who was supposed to come with me, and he explained he can't go in that room, and there was an event prior to, this was supposed to be 8.30 this morning, and we have terrible weather here, so there was going to be a lot of coverage of that, and it's raining, and we couldn't do it. It was going to be outside, because it's very, the cameras here are very limited where they're allowed to shoot. That's why you didn't see them. Thank you for clearing that up, because that, I'm always sure. for where the, where the media is. I'm looking at media right now, actually, in another spot. There's a bunch of cameras. So Jap the Japanese Nippon is here. I just was talking to them at length. And the Nippon media is here. So Japanese are watching. I'll tell you that for sure. So at this point, we need to, not only today, but every day moving forward, we need to tweet, we need to Facebook, we need to use every social media tool yes. that we have yes. heard of, and also to put people in touch with Don't Bank on the Bomb, which has what yes. you say, bank about divesting from nuclear weapons because they may yes. not want to voices but they will listen to our money when it starts to disappear absolutely and i want to make one more point and i have a piece coming out in ms magazine and print in the fall on this and in other places tva um is that in the preamble and in this treaty there is and this is a historic thing and and people should just really pay attention so and we have mary olson to thank for this who's been speaking internationally on this issue and also the work of arjun makajani their work shows and I'm sure you know this, but not everyone does, that women are disproportionately affected by exposure to radiation, significantly so. Women are twice as likely to get cancer from the same exposure to radiation as an adult white male, and children are many more times likely to get cancer from that, and little girls most of all. And fetuses are the most vulnerable. 
So that is actually in the treaty, which is extraordinary. And this is not, you know, a social justice issue, although it is social justice. It's, it's, a, it's a health issue. It's a scientific fact. And so that is in the treaty and also the impact, the, the, the disproportionate impact on indigenous communities. That's also radical. So th this is an important treaty, and it's really calling attention to this issue. Now, so for those of us concerned about nuclear power, remember, radiation is radiation. So you, you know, don't shy away from covering this, this problem of nuclear bombs. I mean, it's all connected. Radiation and safety, health dangers is, is applicable to all radiation, right? All ionizing radiation. So we, we need to pay attention to it. And I'm really thrilled. And I know Mary's thrilled. I met with Mary and I interviewed her and I interviewed Arjun. And they gave wonderful presentations early on in this conference. And I heard them and I'll be writing about that. I've had Mary on the show several times talking about that very issue. And I will undoubtedly be rerunning it very soon. Anything final you would like to say in celebration of this momentous, truly historic moment and event? I would say, look, look what these people accomplished. It is truly remarkable. That means if we keep putting the pressure on, we keep getting active, we don't lose heart and say, oh, nothing can be done. I mean, something historic has just been done. This is huge. Now we must continue. It's not over. And now we must bring in the nuclear nations. And we can and we will. Yes, we will. That was Heidi Huckner at the United Nations, a witness to and reporter on the passage of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons on July 7, 2017. To give the TPNW a bit of perspective, consider this. Until now, nuclear weapons were the only weapons of mass destruction without a prohibition treaty, despite the widespread and catastrophic humanitarian consequences of their intentional or accidental detonation. Biological weapons were banned in 1972 and chemical weapons in 1992. Of this historic event, Beatrice Finn, at the time the executive director of ICANN, said, We hope this marks the beginning of the end of the nuclear age. It is beyond question that nuclear weapons violate the laws of war and pose a clear danger to global security. No one believes that indiscriminately killing millions of civilians is acceptable, no matter the circumstance, yet that is what nuclear weapons are designed to do. Today, the international community rejected nuclear weapons and made it clear they are unacceptable. A quote from Beatrice Finn, at the time the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN. Next, we hear from Alicia Sayers-Zachary. She is the Policy and Research Coordinator at ICANN, where she directs and coordinates research on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons, and General Nuclear Weapons Policy. We spoke in 2020, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, and Sanders Zachary did the research that led to creation of a stunning set of infographics. They presented what the U.S., France, and the U.K. spent on nuclear weapons every year and the equivalency in the amount of COVID medical support that the same amount of money would purchase. It was a report which electrified even mainstream media outlets. She joined us from her home in Geneva, Switzerland for Nuclear Hot Seat Number 459 on April 7. 2020, when the TPNW had not yet entered into force of law. Alicia Sanders-Zachary, thank you so much for joining us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. 
I regularly report on the work of ICANN for Nuclear Hot Seat, but this is the first time I've had anyone who has been from the Geneva headquarters on the show. So let's put some basics in place so that listeners can understand what ICANN is, how it came about, and what its goals are. ICANN is a global network of more than 500 partner organizations in over 100 countries, all with a common goal, which is to ban nuclear weapons, simply. But the long version is that in 2017, we worked to achieve the first treaty banning nuclear weapons adopted at the UN, and now we're working to get that treaty to enter into force. And once it enters into force, it'll become legally binding for all of the state's parties to the treaty. So we currently need 14 more countries to join on to the treaty. And we have a team of campaigners in all of these different countries working with their cities, working with their members of parliament to, to try to get them to get the federal government to join on to the treaty. On the other side, we also have... A team, and this is uh, a lot of the work that I do as the policy and research coordinator, working to stigmatize nuclear weapons and take forward the provisions of the treaty, even in countries that don't support the treaty, to, to engage different members of the community that don't support nuclear weapons and try to change the perspectives of, of those who do. I know that recently there were hearings in New York City with the city council about having New York City come out with a very clear statement against nuclear weapons. Yeah, um, that's been a really exciting development. And we've seen these kind of resolutions coming up in, in local governments and state governments all around the world. You know, in the United States, for example, we have a specific website dedicated to cities that have called on their federal that have adopted resolutions calling on the federal government to join the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons it's you know amazing even even though i work on this all the time for me to see the list of cities that have joined including the nation's capital for example uh, washington dc and uh, and there's been some some really exciting legislation in new york also about looking into divesting from nuclear weapons companies which is another really important symbolic and real measure to show that that companies and governments don't support nuclear weapons. We're going to talk a little bit about the organization and how it functions and how you are in connection with other programs and other groups. I'd like to know about you. How did you become involved with ICANN and were you involved with these issues before the organization? Yep. So I've been working on uh, nuclear disarmament now for the past several years since I was, I started volunteering in university for uh, some really excellent uh, nuclear disarmament campaigners. Um, I went to school around Boston and had the privilege of working with the American Friends Service Committee as a student volunteer. And that's when I really started learning about nuclear weapons. And I'll, I'll never forget the first time that I heard from the Hibakusha, from the survivors of Hiroshima, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because their call to abolish nuclear weapons was such a powerful one and such a morally strong and secure one that I felt, even as someone who studied international relations and international security, I hadn't heard as much about how many nuclear weapons are still in the world today and what countries continue to spend on them. And so I was hearing both about the horrible, terrible legacy of nuclear weapons, 
and knowing that that I, I felt there weren't enough people and particularly not enough young people kind of taking forward this cause that led me to to want to work on this issue. I decided I need to learn more. Um, after graduating, I went to Washington, D.C., and I worked for a couple of think tanks doing research and writing about nuclear weapons. And then uh, was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to come work with ICANN. I'm still focusing on our policy and research, but really putting those facts and putting that research to work in our activism to abolish nuclear weapons. How did ICANN get started? How was it founded and when was it begun? So ICANN is about 10 years old and it was started in Australia and since has kind of really become a global organization. You know, the goal has always been to to ban and eliminate nuclear weapons and how kind of that has happened has evolved and grown over time with a lot of the different campaigns that we've taken on from negotiating the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons to our campaign to work with cities. Um, we work very closely with our campaigners that pursue divestment. And we have a number of kind of new campaigns that we're working on now. How does ICANN work with and in other countries? You said there are over 500 allied organizations in 100 countries. How is that set up? I mean, I think one of the most exciting things for me coming to work for such a global organization was seeing how all these different national chapters can work together for a common goal. Um, it's very interesting to see how within the, you know, this global network, there are, there are regional calls, there are regional strategy, and there's national strategy, and there's even subnational strategies in some of our larger countries. There's a lot of kind of sharing of best practices among countries, but also certainly from the, the international staff team based in Geneva, a lot of our work is listening to our national campaigners about what works best, what how campaigning works best in their national context, and really working with them to understand the situation and how we can help support their campaigning on the ground. What are the qualifications or is there a certification program or can anybody say, okay, I want to work against nukes and I want to be allied with ICANN. How does somebody get into alignment with the organization? We have an open call for partner organizations and those applications are reviewed on a quarterly basis to make sure that organizations believe in our goals and, and want to work with us on our shared goal. We actually just accepted um, about a week ago a new round of partner organizations. It's always really exciting to see uh, new groups join the four, including the Union of Concerned Scientists based in the U.S. I uh, just joined ICANN. So we're, we're really looking forward to working with them and, and all the other uh, new partner organizations. I'm surprised that the Union of Concerned Scientists took this long to join with you. <laughs> well, we're glad to have them. <laughs> and what about your work with two groups that I have covered on the show, which are Don't Bank on the Bomb and Back from the Brink? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really excellent to work with both uh, Don't Bank on the Bomb and the Back from the Brink campaign. You know, as the research coordinator with ICANN, part of my role is producing new research, but it's also amplifying the research that our partners are already doing, the really great research, including, of course, the Don't Bank on the Bomb report, which is a really exciting, uh, in some ways, tangible marker of the stigmatization of nuclear weapons when you look at the banks and pension funds um, that have divested from nuclear and how 
policies have really changed over the years. It's really exciting to see the work that, that Susie does. We all kind of defer to her as our resident divestment experts. And of course, the Back from the Brink campaign has been doing a lot of really great resolution, national resolution work within um, the United States that we, we also work with, as I mentioned earlier. Denise Duffield here in Los Angeles from Positions for Social Responsibility has been very active in that, and we've spoken several times about it. Now, you did touch upon ICANN having a position with the United Nations in putting forth and getting passed the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. Talk to me about what that process was like so that we can understand what it took and what the involvement of the organization was. So just as a disclaimer, I, I just joined ICANN uh, this past September. So I wasn't with ICANN during the negotiations, but I was there in my role with uh, the Arms Control Association at the time. And it was truly one of the, the highlights of my, certainly my career and also my life to be a part of those negotiations and to see them unfold in real time. It was really an amazing thing to witness, given that you know, sometimes UN meetings can feel a bit stale. Um, you know, it's a lot of people coming together sometimes and reading prepared statements from the floor. And I reported on these meetings for arms control today when I was working at the Arms Control Association. And I had to really struggle to write kind of new headlines often and, and think about how to frame this in an exciting way. But the van treaty negotiations really weren't like that at all. Every day was these uh, unprecedented challenges of, of how to write a treaty text, of how to properly address the suffering posed by nuclear weapons use and testing and in victim assistance and environmental remediation clauses. Beatrice and I just produced a video for International Women's Day about gender and nuclear weapons, and we talked about the groundbreaking provisions in the treaty to provide gender-sensitive assistance for victims of nuclear weapons and to recognize the gendered impact of nuclear weapons in the treaty. It was also exciting, you know, on that line to see all of the really strong female leaders, to see Elaine White Gomez as, as the, the conference president and how gracefully and, and expertly she shepherded the negotiations all throughout. So, you know, I think it was really an inspiring experience to see the treaty come into form and to see all of the, the expert inputs that made the treaty what it is. I wasn't able to be there on that day, but I was certainly listening and watching online. And Heidi Huttner, who's with Stony Brook University and is very active in ecofeminism issues, was there that day. And I caught her 15 minutes after passage. So I caught all of the excitement that was in the room for this. Yeah. Yeah. It was quite thrilling. Now, it's in the ratification process. It past the United Nations, but it has to be ratified by, I believe it's 50 different nations. Where do we stand with that? And what's the latest piece of news here? Currently, the treaty has uh, 81 states that have signed it and 36 that have ratified it. So 14 more states need to ratify for it to reach the 50 threshold. The most recent ratification was uh, Namibia just a couple weeks ago. This is another, I think, really fascinating process to see from the inside, to see how many governments are, are working to ratify it as we speak. You know, it's, there's, there's all of these ongoing internal processes within different countries. 
and a lot of enthusiasm and excitement to join this treaty, especially to be one of the first 50 to make it enter into force. So, you know, it's always really great to hear from my colleagues who are working directly on entering into force about kind of the latest update from this country or that country and, and you know, how close they are to, to getting it, the final instrument of ratification deposited. It's an exciting, it's a fast-moving process, and we're hoping to reach that 50 soon. Namibia was just a few weeks ago, and I have to say, in a time when we've not been getting a lot of very good news to cheer, that was a very good piece of information. In 2017, in large part because of the work that was done to gain passage of the treaty at the United Nations, ICANN received the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. What difference, if any, did that recognition make to the organization and the furtherance of your goals? You know, again, speaking just um, since I, the organization after the Peace Prize was awarded, but having seen kind of the process unfold and actually having talked to ICANN colleagues around that time, I've heard Beatrice say a lot, it's, it's really exciting to see that such a large group of people and such a campaign can share this award and this achievement and that it's not it really, it's not just one person. It's not just Beatrice Finn or, or someone else in the staff team who did this, but it's this enormous coalition of, of activists who really cared about this goal, who were able to create a treaty and, and make such lasting change. So I think having so many people be able to be a part of this award and this achievement was one really exciting thing. I think another is, is, you know, certainly getting more attention to our goals and our objectives. But I think one of the most rewarding things was being able to share it with so many people. And has this helped with your international visibility for your campaign? And certainly there was an infusion of money that came. How has that changed or enlarged the ability of the organization to reach out? It certainly helps. You know, there's, there's, there's no denying that. It's also, you know, a recognition that this work is important, but also that we need to, to continue it. And the thing that can be really exciting about that I think the Nobel Prize Committee tries to do is to give the award to people who can really use it and, and put it to good use. And so to have that recognition to be able to continue the work, I think, is really important. It certainly would have helped if it had turned up on the cover of Time or Newsweek magazine, but unfortunately it didn't. However, there's still that possibility in the future. You're not limited to just one Nobel Peace Prize. Now, as I've been reporting on Nuclear Hot Seat for several weeks, COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, is playing out in some dangerous ways in the nuclear industry. I can certainly speak to those here in the United States, and these are problems with safety, regulation changes, refueling of reactors, and the safety of on-site workers. What, if any, differences has ICANN discerned in the way COVID-19 has influenced the nuclear weapons industry and the countries that have the weapons? Well, I think what we've been kind of concerned to see is that there is, even when it becomes so abundantly clear that nuclear weapons do not provide security or safety for Americans from the threats that we're facing today, the defense industry continues to rely on these weapons. You know, we saw just a few days ago, there was a tweet from the U.S. Defense Department saying that we continue to rely on our nuclear weapons and 
to modernize our nuclear weapons, to provide safety and security for the American people. And it, we always hear this and we always say that it's clear that these nuclear weapons are not protecting us from anything. And they're just draining resources and draining money that could be spent helping Americans face the real threats and helping the, you know, the world face the real threats that we face from pandemics, from climate change, you name it. And it just becomes more clear now, if it wasn't before, that nuclear weapons don't serve to provide uh, anyone security. There were three dramatic infographics that ICANN created to show what the nuclear weapons budget of the United States, the European Union, and the United Kingdom, what those weapons budgets could buy if applied instead to necessary medical supplies for battling COVID-19. Now, speaking for my country, the United States, I thought it was a brilliant illustration of how my government would rather invest in death than in life. How did those graphic representations come about and what kind of response have you gotten to them? So this was kind of just as we were all getting locked down and thinking about the new reality under this pandemic and reading about the short, the real shortages in, in ventilators, in hospital beds, in the exhaustion of our brave medical professionals. We started thinking about what could a year's worth of nuclear weapons spending buy in terms of real protection from the threats that we face and, and real supplies, urgently needed supplies under this pandemic. And so um, we started looking at the countries that have well-documented expenses for nuclear weapons. Um, we'd love to also do this for some of the other countries where nuclear expenditures aren't as transparent, but we don't have those figures. So we started with the US, the UK, and France using documented 2019 spending on nuclear weapons and reported costs of ventilators, ICU beds, and the salaries of nurses and doctors in each country to see just how much one year of nuclear weapon spending could buy in terms of needing gaps in needed supplies. And I started doing this research. I started with the U.S. and I was just trying to do the calculations and see, starting out by, I, I read an article saying that, you know, there was a gap in a certain number of ventilators or beds. And so I'd beat that gap. And then I still had like half of the money left over and I was messaging my colleagues and I was like, how I can't even spend all this money if I wanted to. And so I was just doubling the numbers of supplies that I had initially set out thinking that surely we can't buy this many ventilators. We can't buy these many ICU beds at tens of thousands of dollars each. And it was, it was really astonishing. Even as I say, even as someone who works on this every day to see just how much money we're throwing away. I think sometimes $35.1 billion, it's hard to really imagine how much money that is until you have to break it down into how many $35,000 ventilators or beds are you going to buy? And then you really see just how much money it is and just what a waste it is. I appreciated getting that because it really demonstrated the human cost of nuclear weapons, even when they're not detonated because there's the manufacture, there's the storage, and there are other stories we could go into about how the United States, for one, is ramping up its weapons production, even though we don't need it. What I want to get to is what sparked this outreach to an interview 
with ICAM. And that is the email that you sent out that did have those infographics, but it seemed to frame certain things as being, if not hopeful, at least what we can do to not only keep our spirits up, but to be useful and productive and anti-nuclear in this period of time when we're all suddenly not in the middle of our usual diversions, be it work, be it what we do for play, be it just being able to do what we want to without being paranoid about what might be floating in the air. What were some of those points that were brought up by ICANN? Sure. I mean, this is something we've been thinking about a lot, is how do we take forward our work in this new normal? Because, you know, I think as these graphics and this research makes clear, it's ever more important to be fighting against nuclear weapons in this time. And we also uh, published an op-ed by several doctors, members of the ICANN community who are doctors, who are saying why they fight for nuclear disarmament and why it's such an important issue, even now in the midst of a pandemic. So we want to send out some tips and help our, our members continue their work and continue this fight and activism, even in these challenging times. You know, we've thought about a lot about how to, first of all, turn some of our work online. So for example, as we mentioned in this letter, usually we celebrate ratifications and, and new signatories uh, in person. And, you know, there's an opportunity for a picture, for the signer to be able to kind of see the Nobel Peace Prize and kind of celebrate with a member of the ICANN team. But given these unusual circumstances, that celebration was moved to a Zoom call. You know, we last fall about U.S. university involvement in nuclear weapons. And I was hoping to speak to some universities in person this spring since we've kind of moved some of those events online. So I'll be speaking via teleconference to a class that has classes online. So there are a lot of these opportunities to move events online. But we're continuing to listen and learn from other activists and hear about how folks are, are adapting to this new situation and continuing their work in this new setting. We're still in early days with the COVID pandemic, and it has overwhelmed our attention, our thinking, our emotions. How do you propose that we keep people's attention on the nuclear agenda, in your case, weapons, in my case, the entire range of issues, but how do we keep our focus on that long-term invisible threat to our life and our health and our safety when we're facing a much more short-term and visible invisible threat to our life and our health and our safety? I think it's not so much an either or. And I think, you know, we've also been very careful in telling our campaigners, especially, of course, campaigners who are members of frontline communities like doctors and nurses, grocery store workers, and all those folks have to keep going out and exposing themselves to risks to, to take it easy on themselves and to understand this is a new situation and, and we're all adapting. So I think starting off with that and saying that as much as we are looking for new ways to, to campaign in these times and to be creative and continue our work, it's also important to acknowledge that it's stressful and, and everyone's dealing with a, with a new situation. 
But I think we also have to recognize that these issues are so intertwined and so related. And we just had a, a really inspiring conference uh, in Paris in February, bringing together activists and artists and scientists to talk about how to make a change and how different movements make changes and what we have in common. So I think in this really challenging time, we can recognize that the fact that we've wasted so much money on nuclear weapons, and now there are shortages in, in almost every country of ventilators and beds, and there aren't enough, there's a, a shortage in the National Health Service in the, US, in, the, in the UK, sorry, of doctors and nurses. So it's not a coincidence that you have both of these ha things happening at the same time. It's, they're intricately related. So in order to, to be better prepared to fight uh, a pandemic in the future, you know, we need to seriously reconsider uh, national security priorities in the, the minority of countries that have chosen nuclear weapons. Alicia, I really appreciate the thoroughness of the information you shared and providing your time to Nuclear Hot Seat this morning. Now, if people want to sign up for your emails and any other announcements that come out from ICANN, where can they go and what do they need to do? You can just go to the ICANN website, which is icannw.org slash join. And there you can sign up and we send out kind of regular updates on our activities. Um, I sound out, send out a policy and research newsletter that you can also sign up for on our website if you're interested in that. That's a separate sign up? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. I don't think I'm on that one, but I will be as soon as I get off this call. Anything else you can think of? It's really been a pleasure to, to be here and, and talk about our work. And you know, I wish you the best and all the listeners the best in these trying times. We feel the same for you and everybody at ICANN. You're doing really important work. You're doing it well. And you give us hope that perhaps there will be a change, hopefully sooner rather than later, rather than too late. For now, Alicia Sanders, Zachary, thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks so much. Alicia Sanders, Zachary. She is the Policy and Research Coordinator at the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. We will have links up to the ICANN website, their email sign-up, and also a sign-up for policy email, and the physician's letter that she mentioned. That will all be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 648. One of the most achievable and powerful programs that is part of the campaign to get the TPNW adopted by nuclear states is the ICANN Cities Appeal, asking cities to go on record as opposing nuclear weapons and pledging to take action to encourage their national governments to join the treaty. For a great example of how to lobby a city to sign on to the Cities Appeal, here's a sample of testimony by Alice Slater, a longtime anti-nuclear activist and a member of the board of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. She was one of those who spoke to the city council. She only had two minutes, but Alice packs a powerful punch. Give a listen to her testimony. Oh, my name's Alice Slater. I just want to thank you for this wonderful initiative and proceeding. I'm on the board of World Beyond War and a UN rep at the, uh, for the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. And I'm just so grateful to the council for stepping up to the plate and taking historic action to finally ban the bomb. I was born in the Bronx. 
and went to Queens College when tuition was only $5 a semester. In the 1950s, during the terrible Red Scare of the McCarthy era, at the height of the Cold War, we had 70,000 nuclear bombs on the planet. There are now 14,000, with about 13,000 in the US and Russia. The other seven nuclear-armed countries have only 1,000 among them. So it's really up to us in Russia to move first to negotiate for their abolition as outlined in the new treaty. At this time, none of the nuclear weapon states and our US partners in NATO, Japan, Australia, and South Korea are supporting the new treaty. It may really surprise you to know that Russia has generally been the eager proposer of treaties for verified nuclear missile disarmament. And sadly, it is our country in the grip of the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned against that provokes a nuclear arms race with Russia from the time Truman rejected Stalin's request to put the bomb under UN control to Reagan, Bush, Clinton, and Obama rejecting Obama and Putin proposals that is documented in my submitted testimony to Trump walking out of the INF Treaty just recently. Walt Kelly, the cartoonist of the Pogo comic strip during the 1950s Red Scare has Pogo saying, we met the enemy and he is us. We now have a breakthrough opportunity for global grassroots actions in cities and states to reverse course from plummeting our earth into catastrophic nuclear disaster. At this moment, there are 2,500 nuclear-tipped missiles in the US and Russia targeting all of our major cities. As for New York City, as the song goes, if we can make it here, we'll make it anywhere. And it's wonderful and inspiring that a majority of this city council is willing to add its voice for a nuclear-free world. Thank you so much. Alice Slater of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation addressing the New York City Council on January 30th, 2020. By the way, New York City passed the resolution. I mean, after a presentation like Alice's, how could they not? We will link to the ICANN Cities appeal on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 648. And if you don't know if your city has signed on yet, check the ICANN site to find out. And if they've not, reach out to your city council or elected representatives and urge them to do so. The process is different in each city. So you need to get in touch with your local authorities to ask what steps you need to take, and then take them. Finally, I promise that there is something that you, any of you, can do to help the passage of the TPNW. It comes from the group Don't Bank on the Bomb, and their goal is in their name, taking the financial incentives away from companies that manufacture any portion of nuclear weapons. Here, it is briefly and brilliantly explained by Susie Snyder. She currently works as the financial sector coordinator for ICANN, but at the time we talked, she headed Don't Bank on the Bomb research and campaign, as she had since 2013. This short version of Don't Bank on the Bomb and How You Can Help was recorded at Dr. Helen Caldicott's Symposium on the Dynamics of Possible Nuclear Extinction from March 1st and 2nd, 2015. Now, for one more example of the kind of work being done in conjunction with the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, 
Here's a brief summary of the work of Don't Bank on the Bomb, which at this point I consider to be a public service announcement worthy of repeating. Don't Bank on the Bomb is a system for divesting funds from those companies that are actively involved in the design and manufacture of nuclear weapons. This brief explanation of how the campaign works is ably voiced by Susie Snyder. She coordinates the research, publication, and campaigning activities for the group and is on the steering committee of ICANN. This brief explanation was recorded at Dr. Helen Caldicott's Symposium on Possible Nuclear Extinction on February 28, 2015. It's amazing. It's called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And that's the website, too, don'tbankonthebomb.com. Step one, find out if your bank invests in nuclear weapon producers. Step two, contact your bank. Tell them you don't want them to. Step three, tell the world what the bank says. And if they don't get rid of investments... Go public, because no bank wants to look like a bad guy. It takes one or two people only to make a huge difference. And that can cut off the money stream to the companies that make nuclear weapons. You and I, we have more power than we think. And that power is sitting in our wallet. And how can people find out whether the companies that we're told the bank is supporting have any connection with the nuclear weapons industry? Well, we do a, a significant investigation every year. Now, it's not completely exhaustive, but we profile 28 companies that have association with nuclear weapons modernization and maintenance. And it's on our website, don'tbankonthebomb.com. And we really want people to use our information and contact us all the time. You can do that in, you know, through the website really easily contact me on Twitter, whatever works. And I'm happy to find out more. And if you find out, learn about more companies involved in nuclear weapons, tell us. We'll do the research and we'll make it public for everybody to use. Love it. I loved it when I first heard about it, and I love it still. Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb. We have a longer interview with Susie about the program and its implications and the progress it has been making. It's up on Nuclear Hot Seat number 454 from March 3rd, 2020. Check it out on our website. Susie Snyder, who at the time this was recorded in 2015, was head of Don't Bank on the Bomb. Realize that what she describes is a step any one of us can take. I know I already have. And its effectiveness is not in the power of whatever money you've got in your bank account that will persuade the banks. It's that as few as calls by three to five people calling the same bank and raising this issue will show them that they probably have something that they have not considered and cannot immediately answer and they need to do some research. That means that you have effectively raised the conversation about the TPNW inside that bank. This strategy has been effective throughout Europe and Scandinavia of getting major financial institutions and pension funds to divest from companies that invest in the bomb. So call your bank, your pension fund, your financial advisors, and pose don't bank on the bomb's questions to them, which will make them take it up the food chain. Have fun making your calls and know that they will make a difference. This has been the Nuclear Hot Seat Special on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and the upcoming Meeting of States Parties, which will take place at the United Nations next week. As I've mentioned, I will be going to New York to cover these meetings for five days. 
at as many as 28 separate venues. Plus, I will be having private one-on-one interviews with as many of these individuals as I can manage. So support for my trip east and the show is still needed. We ask that you go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the Donate button to help in any way that you can. Now, if you want to make certain that you never miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, there are two ways for you to do this. The first is, if you're a regular listener to podcasts, go to your favorite podcast channel. We are there. Just sign up and you will get the show every week. But an even better way from our perspective is to go to Nuclear Hot Seat and you will find a big yellow box there. You really cannot miss it. Put in your first name, put in an email address you want to use, and you will get one email per week from Nuclear Hot Seat with a link to that week's show and a brief description of some of the content of it. It makes it easy and it also puts you on our database, which gives us all kinds of benefits when it comes to the Google algorithms. I get the show, you get your support, it works out for all of us. Now, you're on the ground, in your country, in your community, and whatever nuclear issues you are facing, you're seeing them up close and personal with a lot of detail, much more than I can get at a distance. So this is where you can come in and help the show as well. If you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com with that information in it. Best to do it there and not over Facebook. Trust me, I'll find it on email. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your support. Anything helps, and we are deeply grateful, whatever that is. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi, Hardestry Communications, and Nuclear Hot Seat. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. As long as you give credit where credit is due and mention the name of the show and the website, as well as any further identification of the guests or me. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you once again that as Pope Francis said, nuclear weapons exist in the service of a mentality of fear that affects not only the parties in conflict, but the entire human race. That's it. You have it. Your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.